0: I am also the publisher for Zippy Books which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now and you can check it out on zippybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zippy Mag where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zippymag.com. We have classes at zippyclasses.com and I recently opened a books James B. Stewart is the author of Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire, and The Redstone Family Legacy. James Stewart is the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Deep State, Tangled Webs, and the blockbuster Den of Thieves. Also, Disney War, which I read and absolutely loved. He is currently a columnist for the New York Times and a professor at Columbia Journalism School. In 1988, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the stock market crash and insider trading. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your latest book, Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I have to tell you, I have been such a fan of yours for so long. And this is a podcast I'm like giddy excited to be doing. I have read so many of your books. I read Den of Thieves. I read Disney War on my first honeymoon to my ex-husband. And that was like <laughs> the entire honeymoon I sat there and read this book. So now Unscripted and all your articles and everything. So anyway, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I love the way you write and your amazing reporting and,
3: and all of it. Thank you.
0: So why don't you tell listeners a little about Unscripted?
3: Well, this is, this is quite the saga. You know, early in my career, I sometimes wondered like, oh, where's the next story going to come from? And at this point in my life, I realized there's always another story. And sometimes it's, it's, you know, I think nothing's going to surprise me. And then everything about this surprised me. But this is the, the saga. Really the arc of the story is the billionaire Sumner Redstone is entering his, you know, his final years. He was at his peak, you know, arguably the most important figure in in media and entertainment with an empire that controlled, you know, the CBS Network, Paramount Movie Studio, the Viacom cable channels, Nickelodeon, MTV, Comedy Central. And he was increasingly estranged from his family, especially his daughter, Sherry. And the story really is she is drawn back into both the family business and her father's life by a bizarre set of circumstances, and, and really she confronts you know, one obstacle, one hurdle after another towards restoring her relationship with her father and regaining family control of this multi-billion dollar empire. So uh, you know, a lot of people have compared this to a real-life succession, and I, I get that. In some ways, I think it's stranger than succession, but ultimately it's I think it's a family drama, and particularly about a very rich and powerful father and a daughter. And That fascinated me, I think, because I think especially in nonfiction, you don't see that many depictions of that relationship, fathers and sons, mothers, daughters, much more common. Uh, But this is the dynamic that really drives the plot here.
0: So interesting. You know, it almost, did you read the new Jim Patterson book with Mike Lupica, The House of Wolves or something like that? The House of den what's it called? Something with wolves. Well,
3: no, I haven't read it, but I should read it. And I will admit to you something that I have not said in any public forum but I was starting I guess I'd started writing maybe I just started writing this book and anyway, I was on vacation we rented a house in the Virgin Islands and they had a bookshelf there of books people had left and there was a James Patterson novel there and i would never read one and I thought well wait a minute this guy has sold <laughs> how many millions of, I don't I couldn't even count so I thought you know don't be an elitist here. I, I'll just take a look at this. So I, I started reading this and I'm telling you, it's like you on your honeymoon or whatever. I would, yeah. we'd be at the beach. Where I said, can we get back? Can we go home? Can we go home a little early? Because I've got to stop. I've got to keep reading this book. And I was obsessed with it. I loved it. So after that, I was, you know, scouted around online and I saw that James Patterson gives these courses in, in writing. And he charged some huge amount of money and i i wasn't going to sign up for that but then i saw some of his former pupils had distilled a lot of what he wrote and so i eagerly read all of that and honestly i did follow some of the suggestions here including to write shorter chapters and i'd always written these like 10,000 word chapters before and then like, suddenly i thought you know that's that's an interesting idea i mean his chapters are three pages or four pages now i didn't go that far but i definitely chopped it down and it's really interesting because you have to craft that. You know, you've got to be thinking, okay, the end of a of thought, the end of a scene, and then how do you get people going? But it really sped up the momentum, I think. Anyway, but people have been complimenting, you know, the book and how readable it is. And, and again, I've never said this before, but it gives me credit to James Patterson.
0: That is so funny. Oh, my gosh. I love it. <laughs> uh, I love that you... Didn't pay for the class, and you're like getting the cliffs notes of the class. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's like that's...
3: I'm, I'm sorry, James Patterson's listening to this. Oh and my gosh! I hope he doesn't miss that income. But um, <laughs> yeah. <I rent> <laughs> I, I got that secondhand. Oh, my gosh.
0: Well, his latest book is about, and I just had him on the podcast for this, which is why I'm bringing it up. I don't usually just talk about other people's books, but it featured like the daughter of a very powerful oh, man you know. who has to then take on the company. And I don't know. I think you'll find oh, it interesting. Yeah.
3: yeah, some real similarities there. I'll yeah. have to take a look. Uh, in
0: fact, the two of you should really go on the road. You should do like an event together. <laughs> I'll I'll moderate. I'll I'll be the moderator if you want. <laughs> anyway. Um, but it is interesting and especially sort of this withholding of of parental love or like what it does to a child to not have the oh, consistency yeah. of love and how how do you handle that and how does that affect your personality and therefore of course your leadership style, but really everything that you do in life, right? And that's it's
3: absolutely and that you know it's a theme that runs throughout the book and you know. Somner Reston, you know, the billionaire mogul, um, you know, has many, I don't know quite how to put this in a polite way, but he's not exactly a role model, put it mildly. I mean, he himself said, you know, I'm going to go to hell anyway, so I might as well (laughs) do whatever I want or something, you know, something of that effect. But clearly throughout the story, his daughter, Sherry, is still yearning for his approval and his love. And there's, I think, an incredibly poignant scene, you know. Right. Almost at the very end where, you know, Sumner has finally died and his daughter reaches out to his closest confidant and says, well, do you think he really loved me? And uh, I, I really I, I it just, you know, it gets me even now because I was thinking after all that, all that she did for him, the fights that she went through, she doesn't have the peace of mind of even knowing that, you know, which is probably the one thing that she really wanted. I think that's a lesson, you know, for anybody in a family. To some extent, you know, we, we all feel that about our parents.
0: It's true. I feel like she might have benefited from maybe a little bit of a better therapist or something, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, cuz after a while, what can you can only you have to make peace with that in if you're going right. to be as successful
3: Personally, right. right. Emotionally, right. I don't know. Well, her brother just abandoned the family completely. He he sold out his interests. He took two hundred fifty million dollars and he went to a ranch in Colorado, never to be heard from again. I don't know that that's the the answer either. You know, that's like just you know running yeah. away from the thing. And I, you know, I don't know what kind of peace of mind he has, but I don't know that that's you know the best way to deal with it either. True.
0: Well, you you describe in the book some of the ways in which he is not. Like the most role model of a of a guy.
3: (laughs) Put it mildly.
0: Can you tell the story here about the fire? Because I hadn't known that until I read this book. And
3: oh yeah, well I think this was a very formative episode as as well. It might have been, but he was staying. He was from the Boston area, but he was staying at the Copley Plaza Hotel one night, which is a you know kind of famous old hotel on Copley Square in Boston, and and a fire broke out on the floor, and he had to escape from the room, and he went out the window. And tried to climb out of there and he was hanging from the window ledge. Eventually, he was hanging by only one hand because the flames were, you know, lapping out of the window and they seriously burned his hand. Somehow, he managed to hang on until the rescuers got there and and he escaped. But his hand was permanently, he was in the hospital for serious surgery and his hand was disfigured for the rest of his life. But he seemed to take away from that episode the sense that he was invincible; that nothing, the sheer willpower, had saved his life, and that willpower went on to, you know, conquer the media world. And you know, he outbid, you know, one suitor after to another to acquire all these properties, and that seemed to that survival uh, instinct seemed to shape much of the rest of his life. I mean, he went around later in life saying, "Oh, I'm never going to die," and I, you know, he cannot literally <laughs> believe that, but. He certainly said it on many occasions, and I think that you can trace a lot of that to that episode. Now, w- one thing that was not disclosed at the time was that he had a mistress in the room with him, and she got out first, and he's his credit, he let her go. She was relatively unscathed. But it took 20 years for that to emerge, and it was just the beginning. I mean, his philandering was notorious and only got worse as he got... A-
0: but you were so funny, too, because... <laughs> He like described how he dressed and like the size of his, his lapels or his tie or the shirt. And you're like, he's so unlikely to be this, you know, Lothario, the way that he looks and dresses.
3: I, I know. <laughs> well, there was one detail there that, that he came to a meeting. I think it was a closing or something in New York, you know, with all these high powered investment bankers.
0: Oh, with like Sam's Club or something? No. What did you say? TJ Maxx. TJ Maxx? Yeah. You're not a fan.
3: Uh, well, you know, he was always saying his favorite movie was The Godfather. And, um, I, you know, I agree it's an excellent movie, but I, I don't know that I would want to like dress like one of those characters and, you know, with the implications that that involved, yeah. but then, you know, that's just me. So.
0: <laughs> I feel like my life keeps circling around The Godfather. Did you watch that show about Bob Evans? Oh this... my
3: God, Bob Evans. No, but that. Bob Evans was Sunder's so-called best friend and yes. you know, seems to have been a bad influence. But I sometimes wonder, if was it the other way around? I <laughs> think mm, <laughs> there's a scene in the book where Bob e- Evans sits down at one of his birthday parties to one of the younger women who he was sort of dating. And he was living with these two mistresses in the mansion. And, and Bob Evans says, you know, you've got to save him from these women. And I was thinking, oh, my God, that's rich coming from Bob Evans, given his you know, notorious blunder. <laughs> <philandering. laughs>
0: You have to watch it when you have a second. It's like the yeah. best show. So I've um, got to
3: read the James Patterson book. I've got to watch the bottom. You do, you. you do. You're going to keep me busy for a while. I,
0: I am. Well, I mean, I guess I should ask. Like, when you're not doing what I'm telling you to do and you're not writing books like this, what do you do with your like? Are you working nonstop? I know we'll come back to the book, but in your spare time, what do you normally like to read and write and do? And
3: Oh, I, I have a lot of interests. you know, I know where to start. I mean, yes, I do like the weekends it, this it, well, I was writing this book you know with my co-author during the pandemic you know which was the weekends just blurs so, you know I really I I probably did work virtually every weekend during that period but not all the time and so I have a number of hobbies I'm a very uh, avid pianist I play classical music and you know if life is sort of normal which it's not at the moment I Practice every every day. I try to practice an wow. hour every day, and of course, I don't get to do it every day. But maybe I do five out of seven. So, wow. and I and I play a lot of chamber music, and so so that's that's one very nice hobby. And I also like gardening, and I have a garden both here in the city, small one in the backyard, and then I have we have a house upstate New York where I have a, a garden that's way too big,
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> as I realize now, and I've had to like get a little help there. But so I, I really enjoy all that, and I do. I read a lot, and I uh, I teach at Columbia as well, and I encourage my students to read both fiction and nonfiction. And, then, and again, writing this, this to me was it was there was such rich raw material, and it really gave me an opportunity to write what I would call like a nonfiction novel. It has, it has all the elements of of fiction, even though all the facts are verified and you know accurate. I certainly hope. And but you can, you you there's enough material there that you can you know evoke these broader Themes like I, I mentioned the the generational generational issues, the family drama, the corrupting influence of great wealth, or at least the opportunity to get it. All of that sort of emerges without me having to you know take a baseball bat and hit the reader over the head. So I do read fiction. I read nonfiction. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm busy, but <laughs> oh, and I like to cook. I like to cook too. I find that very soothing, especially after writing. You know, all day. And a weird thing about the pandemic is, you know, you think, well, writing is kind of a solidary enterprise anyway. You've got to hole up somewhere and, like, churn this out. But in in normal times, the day ends and you, like, you can go out, you can go to dinner, you can see your friends, you can let off steam, you can say, oh, you won't believe what I found out today, you know, something like that. I think there's a reason why, you know… I live in the, in the West Village of Manhattan and there are all these bars around that where, you know, famous writers used to go hang out, probably drink too much, but you, you do sort of need that. And then with the pandemic, that was gone. But I found that at the end of the day, a little cooking is very therapeutic. It, you know, you have to, at least I have to concentrate. I'm not one of those people who can like cook and talk at the same time. <laughs> I like to concentrate and it really kind of, I found was very soothing and a, a nice change of pace. So. So, I don't do anything fancy, but I, I do like it. I like the shopping too.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like my husband also used to love to cook until the pandemic, when he cooked for the four kids and me the entire time, and he's like, "I never want to do this again."
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't have to do it three meals a day. So um, I know I, can, I can't imagine what my mother and I was doing all those years, but. <laughs>
0: So I know you started your career as a lawyer and morphed into this whole other piece of your career afterwards. Did you want to be a writer when you were a lawyer? And by the way, I feel like most lawyers want to be writers. I feel like we should take a poll and like the next great place to find fiction, we should just poach all the law firms because I bet there are a lot of books lurking there.
3: Yeah well of course there's John Grisham and I think yeah well I um I was in litigation and I don't think I I certainly didn't go to law school it'd spent 3 years with a lot of work and a lot of tuition knowing that I was going to oh, right. <laughs> into what would be uh, otherwise considered a relatively low paying you know alternative practicing law but I did by the time I was working in a big law firm I was giving more thought I've I've written about this at some length. I think it was one of the most important lessons I learned in life. I was working at a big law firm in New York, Privat, Swin, and Moore, very competitive. And I saw the people who thrived there and did the best were the people who absolutely loved what they were doing. They had such a competitive advantage. And even though I enjoyed it and I did like getting a paycheck, I realized I didn't love it nearly as much as they did. And I Ultimately, I don't think that you can compete. So I thought, well, what what would I love as much as they do? And I'd been editor of my college newspaper, and I was like all the time, I was like dreaming up story ideas that if I was a journalist, I might write. And so I realized, you know, I'm gonna. It seems like a radical change, but I'm gonna make the leap into journalism because I think that's what something that I would really love to do. And you know, you don't love any job every minute of every day. That's completely unrealistic. But I've really never looked back from that. I really do. I do love what I do for the most part. And that is, you know, a good part of your life is spent working. So if you can enjoy that, what an advantage. So I really feel very lucky that I learned that lesson working at Kravath and then went on and put it into practice. And, you know, here I am all these decades later.
0: Oh my gosh. I learned the same lesson. I went to business school, I thought I wanted to be in marketing. And then I went to business school and met people who, like, loved marketing so much. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I don't actually, I don't want to do it like you do. Like, you should take those jobs then. (laughs) But it's, it's so true. I mean, there are people who love everything. You should, yeah, finding passion is wonderful. So what topics are you digging into these days, writing about, thinking about?
3: Well, I did a, bi- a really big piece uh, for The Times on this sort of AT&T management of the Warner assets. And I, I'm not, a, per se, a media or entertainment person, but I guess partly because I was working on this book, which was, you know, set in the world of Hollywood and media and entertainment. I was I developed some sources. And anyway, the, the that story is about a sort of the colossal. Mismanagement, if you want to call that, of these the, these incredibly you know valuable and historic media assets by a company by, phone company executives. So it's it's kind of again about it's more about a culture clash than it is any technical business thing per se. So that that was a big story that I was working on, and then that, that led right into the succession drama, Disney. You know, you know, a lot of people, as I said, have compared. Um, unscripted to the TV series Succession, and I can see sort of see why. But then there are these other succession, you know, issues arising all over the place. So that was kind of an interesting drama that I, I wrote some about. I haven't started on another uh, book project. I can't. I can never get my head clear. It's going to take me a little while before I get unscripted out of. <laughs> I'm not talking about it so much, and you know, and have put that sort of behind me. Of course, I'd like to do another another story, and I and I do have the germ of a few ideas. But I I, I look back sort of on my career, and I it, not that I planned it, but I do seem drawn to stories of people who seem to have everything, and but yet it's not enough. And then they misbehave, and they they do the kind of bad things that they know they shouldn't do, and it gets into trouble. And I, and I think they're those the archetype those stories go way back i mean shakespeare's ob- obvious place to start but those themes have you know reappeared in um literature for centuries and i think it's because at their core they're really about fundamental issues about human nature and how we as people you know process information and wealth and relationships and then act on those drive and ambition and You know, because it's all about people, it's endlessly fascinating to me. So I seem to be drawn to those kinds of stories.
0: I wonder if over time we'll see similar patterns emerge from more and more women in power. Because, you know, we're just the generations of women who are leading all the companies. It's just.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, and this is the first book. And Sherry Redstone, she's the protagonist of the story. She's drawn drawn into this uh, prey initially kind of against her will she grows, she changes, she matures, she ends up, you know, if you want to call it that, victorious at the end. And this is the first of my, this is my 11th book, and this is the first one where I've had a significant protagonist as a woman. And I think that is a sign of the times, although there's still a long way to go. And by the way, you know, certainly one of the themes of this book is the, to me, astonishing misogyny and sexism that permeated the upper ranks of the boards and management and these companies and again, I only dealt into this particular company, but I have no reason to believe this is an isolated example. And but to see it laid out, you know, people don't ever want to admit this, but we you see it in their emails, their texts, the all the documents we got. Somebody told me that after reading this book, no CEO is ever going to write a text again.
2: <laughs>
3: maybe that's the maybe that'll be the case. And you know, partly because there were so many lawsuits about all this, and again, advantage of being a lawyer lawsuits generate, you know, a trove of, of valuable information when you can get access to it. And we did get even things that were supposed to be kept secret. A lot of people did hand over to us. So we got the raw material. We could demonstrate that.
0: Wow. And how did you like uh, collaborating on this book?
3: It was great. I've, I've never had a co-author. Rachel and I, we really, I don't think we knew each other at all. I mean, I guess I'd seen her in the newsroom, but when we she bumped into me one day and we realized we were working on parallel tracks on the kind of the same story, which was about the ouster of Les Moonves from CBS. And then we went from there, but she had this incredibly valuable um, source who we still can't identify at this point, but who provided an amazing trove of information. And so that was, you know, fundamental to getting the book deal and doing the book. And then I also had some sources funneling additional information. We, We ended up having, you know, you know, maybe a half dozen of sources we can't name, but nevertheless, because I think motivated, because they didn't want this story swept under the rug, they contributed, you know, really valuable information. So we we put it all together. And I was I was very happy that in talking to some of them since then, they said, Oh, I can't believe, you know, you, I gave you all this, but then you got all this other material. <laughs> and it is true in reporting that with every additional fact tends to lead to more. The more you know, the more you can find out. Uh, and that proved to be the case here.
0: My Big takeaway is that you actually people actually listen to the tip line of the newspaper. Oh yes,
3: <laughs> yes, that's where the source came from. Just you know, kind of out of the blue. And yes, those get taken very seriously. Even though honestly, ninety nine percent of them don't don't go anywhere. But you know, the one that does, boom. Also, also that people have said that like the the fact that I ran into Rachel and we went down this path together is a case for in-office work because that would never (laughs) happen if we were just sitting in our bedrooms or whatever, tapping away. Very true. Yes. Well,
0: (laughs) you never know what happens around the water cooler or walking by each other. Yeah, that's true. I know you've mentioned this, but I was going to ask you what advice you have for aspiring authors, but maybe I should ask what other advice you got from James Patterson for aspiring (laughs) authors.
3: (laughs) No, I do have some advice. I mean, I, I teach uh, at, at Columbia, which which I really enjoy. And one of the things I stress to my students is that it's not what you know that's so interesting. It's what you don't know. And that people aren't used to thinking that way. You have to kind of train your brain uh, over a period of time. I, I was a, an editor at the Wall Street Journal for a number of years, and I was a page one editor. So we had to, like, come up with 15 front page stories a week, three, three five days a week. And that was an excellent exercise because I was constantly, of course, many of the reporters had their own ideas, but we were also sending out ideas for stories. And so to me, what's interesting is like, what questions do you have that you might be able to answer? What don't we know? What has happened that seems inexplicable? That's what I think turns in, into good stories. Too many of my, well, not so much my students, but people, they think, you know, there's an old saying of writers like, write what you know. My variation on that would be figure out what you don't know, but want to know, find out and then write it. I mean, over the years, I've had reporters or writers come to me and say, oh, I have writer's block. I can't write. I've been, you know, I've been in a room all eight hours and I can't, I'm throwing everything out. It's, I don't really believe in writer's block. It's invariably that they have nothing to say (laughs) because they have not gone out and gotten the information yet. And Almost always, I would say, you know, you're not ready to write. Go do more reporting. So what don't you know? What are the questions? How can you find out? Go out and do that work. And then you'll be able to to write it. An interesting thing that happened in this book, which made a great impression on me, because I'm always telling my students, don't have any preconceived ideas about what a story is. You might think you know what it is, which is fine, but be open to facts that take you in another direction. So I started writing this and I thought it was, we kind of thought, oh, it's the Me Too movement, it's the corporate boardroom. And then we got in touch with this guy, George Pilgrim, who was the boyfriend of one of Sumner's mistresses. And I figured at most he'd be a minor character in all of this. So Rachel went out to interview him and he's an unbelievably interesting character. And he was telling us everything and he'd save emails and texts and he turned everything over. Um, he was a fantastic source, even though he was also an ex-convict. <laughs> so I was thinking to myself, you know, this is not this is incredible, but you know, he's he's taking over the story. I was kind of annoyed. So <laughs> this is not the book that we set out to write. And what's going on here? And but one morning I woke up and I had this flash of insight. And I said, let him take over the story. He is the story, he is a key part of the story. We threw everything out and started all over again. He's in the opening scene. And it was incredible how the whole story just fell into place.
0: Wow. All thanks to George Pilgrim, his thanks Facebook posts Pilgrim. and all of that. You know, we have to be careful now about our texts and Facebook posts and everything else that like, <laughs> comes out of our fingertips. You never know what's going to happen. Anyway, well, James, thank you so much. It's been really fun talking to you. I love this idea of you like cooking and gardening and playing the piano. It's like so relaxing. I feel relaxed (laughs) just even talking to you about it. It sounds so nice.
3: (laughs) I I should go practice the piano right now.
0: You should. You you go for that. (laughs) Anyway, uh, thank you so much for your time and congratulations. This is really fun. I enjoyed it. Good. Me too. Bye. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.